Welcome to the Ardent Archives, a ministry of North Clay Baptist Church. Here we explore the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. In this series, we are reading and discussing Assurance by Charles Spurgeon. This small booklet is the sum of three sermons delivered by the Prince of Preachers on the subject of assurance. Spurgeon directed these sermons to Christians who question their faith and live with doubt concerning their salvation pointing to Christ and Christ alone as the author and finisher of our faith and the guarantee of our salvation. So sit back and prepare to have your heart and mind engaged as we dive into Assurance by Charles Spurgeon. Hello again and welcome back to the Ardent Archives. We are certainly excited to be back with you discussing another book. I am one of your hosts, Pastor Drew Bieber. I'm here with my co-host, Pastor Josh McDaniel. Josh, it's great to be back. Glad to be back. Can we really call this a book? I mean, because it's, it's three sermons collected from the pulpit of Charles Spurgeon. So I guess maybe it's a collection. I guess it is a book in the, in the truest sense. Yeah. And, you know, as I was... Uh, you know, doing some research on, on these sermons, it's a little unclear who actually compiled these sermons and put it in a book. Yeah, we got this uh, this particular book uh, from a website called Monergism.com. Can't recommend them enough. They have a a vast library of of now numbering over seven hundred books, and they're all uh, free. They're all free uh, books from church history, books that are in the public domain. Um, and so it appears that they're the ones who actually compiled these sermons and put it into this into this booklet. But they don't make that information known on their website. So it's a little unclear uh, who actually compiled the book. But yes, it's it, it's somewhat of a booklet. And yet it's it's really just a collection of, of three of his sermons. Yeah, but and, what a timely thing to discuss, too. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I'm, and the, I'm certainly thankful that somebody put these together because yeah. all of these sermons really – um, you know, complement one another, although they were preached over the span of about 25 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's, you know, right now, I mean, you want to talk about, um, you know, it being 2021, there's all this chaos and disorder that's been going on. Uh, and, and, you know, we're looking to futures being shaky, all these sorts of things. The last thing that anyone needs to, to wrestle with is, is, is assurance. And so to have Charles Spurgeon himself going through these sermons to have this time to say, no, we can be sure of one thing. Doesn't matter what's going on in the political climate. Doesn't matter what's going on in the world. We can be sure of Christ. We can be sure of his work and we can be sure that there is salvation in his name. Right. And if we're going to seek to be sure of anything, the most important thing we should seek to be sure of is our own salvation. Absolutely. And and I think we're going to hear that a couple of times in these sermons, you know, from Spurgeon, you know, oh, yeah, just a absolutely. few times perhaps. And so let's jump in real quick to uh, to who Charles Spurgeon was. Uh, we can talk a little bit about uh, about these sermons, and we'll actually spend uh, some some time discussing each of these sermons individually. Um, so I feel like Charles Spurgeon is one of those uh, historical figures, um, at least in our modern day, that everyone knows of, but no one really knows. And I say that yeah, I say I, that from experience. Um, I. You know, I can't think of a time when I did not know the name Spurgeon, mm-hmm. um, but I was, and I was certainly familiar with the fact that he was a Baptist. I was familiar with the fact that he was Reformed. I was familiar with the fact that he liked smoking cigars, and right. he had some great quotes about you know uh, growing out a beard and different things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Uh, but if you were to ask me, well, what have you read of Spurgeon? The answer was nothing. 
Okay. Uh, and so I would, you know, I would talk about Spurgeon. I talk about his influence, but quite honestly, I had never really been influenced by anything he did outside of those hilarious quotes about smoking cigars to the glory of God and beard growing is a you know is a biblical discipline and yeah, different there's things like agony that. in every part of life except for eating donuts those right kinds yeah. of things you know what i mean uh, and so or, I, i'm sorry I, eating pancakes pancakes well i mean well pancakes, I, i'm sorry of, i contemporized it for the baptist today <laughs> so that's what i did today but so, so i feel like spurgeon is one of those like, like i say he's one of those figures that we're very aware of and yet we're not we're not really aware of in a sense that he's actually had an impact on our lives yeah, and man, or, or his theology or his teaching or, or anything has, has, has really had an impact because like I, you know, uh, like we've said before, people don't really take the time to read and certainly not from history. And so let's kind of dive into who actually was mm-hmm. Charles Spurgeon. Yeah. I mean, he was known as the Prince of Preachers, or he's still known today as the Prince of Preachers, the only person who maybe holds a title greater than him as far as the pulpit is uh, Whitfield, uh, who's known as the King of Preachers. Hmm. You know, and so, but Spurgeon, and and you go back and you read his uh, his his sermons, you read what he did in the pulpit, and and you you get a sense that man, this guy could. Preach, yeah, and and anybody who just gets up and reads his sermons, like I tried to do, we're not going to do it justice to the way he did it. Just there's no way we can be so eloquent uh, as to explain it. And even when you go back and and you read his commentaries on books of the Bible, which I've been privileged to go back and look at, them, it's it's really less uh, of a work like what you see in typical commentaries. You know, they they take the passage. And they'll exposit the passage. They'll they'll go into the the Greek, or they'll go into the right. Hebrew. It's, it's much more of a technical commentary. Yeah, that's that's not what Spurgeon does at all. When you read his commentaries, you get the sense that ooh, that'll preach. You know, that's that's kind of where <laughs> right. you land at. And he was certainly a preacher. He was a gifted preacher. His pulpit was renowned in his day, and even now, his sermons are still renowned because. The guy could preach. Right. And I, I may be wrong about this, but I, I do believe it was Spurgeon that was really one of the first preachers that made a concerted effort to make sure that his preaching, his sermons were put down in written form and were preserved yeah. in that way. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Calvin is known for saying that really, if you want to know where my heart is at, if you want to know what my doctrine, what my theology is, don't look to my systematics. Don't look to you yeah. know my writings, look to my preaching. If, right. you, if you truly want to know what I believe, look to my preaching. And yet we don't really have a, a wide collection of Calvin's sermons, right. at least not in the same way that we do today. Most everyone's sermons today are documented uh, either in audio or video format, uh, but that wasn't always the case. We didn't right. always have video cameras or audio uh, devices, microphones, you know, picking up our, our voices and different things like that. And the only way you could get your sermons preserved was to write them down. Yeah. And uh, Spurgeon actually hired a stenographer that would listen to him preach and would actually like type out his sermons so and, that so that he could have these sermons preserved. And what for, a resource! For later generations. What a value that is to, I mean, young men and women today, to old men and women today, to see this incredibly gifted preacher uh, have his sermons laid out there for us today. Yeah, he, it's it's a, a tremendous gift. A oh, tremendous absolutely. Resource. And it just, it, it kind of makes me wonder how many Spurgeons are, are, are out there that we don't really know of simply because they did not have the means 
to uh, record and preserve uh, yeah. their preaching. And yet we are so thankful that, you know, God has gifted a man like Spurgeon, but that we can, you know, almost, you know, 300 years later, uh, two or 300 years later, we can still learn from yeah. a man like Spurgeon. Yeah. So, I mean, he's he was in a family of preachers. You know, I mean, his granddad was a preacher. His dad was a preacher. Yeah. There were uncles who were preachers. You know, I mean, he so he kind of grew up maybe not being groomed for that life, but certainly saw that life modeled. And he, he, he heard, you know, many of his family members who would later become huge influencers uh, in his preaching style. There's no way if you grow up in a family right, like that, right. that they're not going to influence your preaching style. Well, and you got to remember too, they didn't have things like social media, you right. know, you know, the, uh, you know, probably the biggest impacts on, on my, you know, preaching on my, um, you know, uh, understanding of theology, you know, has come through the internet. Mm-hmm. Whereas back in Spurgeon's day, that wasn't a thing. I mean, really, probably the very, you know, one or two generations ago, that wasn't a thing. Right. And so his sphere of influence was really those around him. Yeah. And so he's born to his mom's name was Eliza and she actually gives birth to 17 children. Wow. 17 children is a lot, but of those 17, uh, only eight survived adolescence. It was a, you know, it's a difficult time. They didn't have the, the, the medicines. They didn't have the, uh, healthcare that we have today. And so only eight of those survived. And the first one, the first child was Charles. That's right. And he was actually, his birthday is on June uh, 19th. So it's actually kind of fitting that this is going to come out on June 1st. That's right. Right in time for his birthday. And he was born in 1834. So that's, we're coming up on 200 years. Which is kind uh, of an exciting time, man. Kind oh, of absolutely. An exciting time to be thinking about. Um, but so he, he's born... But because of economic hardships, because of difficulties, uh, at 18 months old, uh, Charles had to be sent to live with his grandfather, James, who was a preacher. Mm -hmm. And he's there with uh, his grandfather and his aunt, Anne. Uh, And she was about 17 at the time. But she, Anne, becomes even kind of a a mom to him. He, of course, is very close with his grandfather. But it's, it's it's during the time that he's with his grandfather that he develops something that would later become for him a major part of his life. He develops a love for books. Yeah. Now, he is young while he lives with his grandfather, so he can't read. But he... I mean, he loves, he talks about it in some of his writings. He loves just the smell of a book. He loves the feel of it in his hand. He loves um, flipping the pages and hearing it. He loves the way that at that age that he could see these pictures and that these pictures obviously are telling a story and they're progressing a narrative. And and, and they became for him a, a passion. A love, and he, his uncle, or excuse me, his grandfather had just hundreds of books, and so Charles would stow away into that library, and even though he couldn't read them, man, he would flip through the pages of those books, and it was almost as if he was uh, being exposed to a world that he couldn't quite access, right? Yet. But and there was there was a level of yeah, there was a level of excitement that man, there's a there's an entire world within these pages, 
And like you said, I, I just I can't wait until I'm able to to step into it. Right. And and he is he has been quoted as saying that we need to visit many books, but that we need to live in the Bible. Right. Which is, I mean, again, it's such a great such a great quote, such a great yes. way of 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 just framing that that concept of of reading and not only reading but reading scripture. In yes. Particular. Yes. And I mean, he was all throughout his life. I mean, he was just an avid reader and, and almost, you know, like you hear of a chain smoker. Well, he was a chain reader. I mean, he would (laughs) put down a book and he would pick up another one, you know, just constantly moving through it. But that started while he was living with his grandfather and he's hearing his grandfather preach. He's being raised with this idea that books are precious. And there is one book in particular that is above all others. And that is the scripture. Right. And so he moves back to be with his mom and dad uh, at about six years old. And he remembers those lessons, though, the, the, the sermons that he heard his grandfather preach, the lessons of having these books and of being fascinated with it. And he grows up. And, and you, you have to remember, not children's ministry wasn't a thing back then. They didn't. Right. They didn't dumb down. Uh, the gospel presentation to try and make it, you know, palatable to children. They were told the gospel the same way that adults are told the gospel. Through the Maybe, preaching ministry of the pulpit. That's right. Maybe because the gospel is powerful to do the work of salvation no matter the age. Right, right. And I can't remember. I want to say it was, I heard uh, Doug Wilson say this, and he was specifically talking about, you know, segregated ministries, whether it's, Children's ministries, women's ministries, ministries to, you know, left-handed Pacific Islanders, you know, that live in the Northwest or whatever. You know what I mean? You can you can disseminate it to just about every level. And the point he made was that historically, all of these different groups of people have been ministered to in the same way. Mm-hmm. And that was through word and sacrament. And really, when God instituted his church, he knew that that would be enough. Right. And so he hears not... Ask Jesus into your heart. He hears, you know, not there's a, a God-shaped hole in your heart that only he... <laughs> right. He, 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 he hears the full counsel of God. He knows that he needs to repent, believe in the gospel. He knows that he needs to turn to him and him alone for salvation but he wrestles with it. Yeah. He goes through a time where he really struggles with this salvation. How do I do that? How how can I be a recipient of this grace of God? How can I put my faith in God? Uh and and he's been raised in church. He's been raised hearing preachers and uh on one particular Sunday, he's about 15 years old. On one particular Sunday, he's on his way to church again. And he is wrestling hard with the gospel. And how is this gospel applied to my life? And it's on his way to church. Uh he's he's walking in this terrible snowstorm, this awful, bitter, cold snowstorm, and he ducks for shelter in a church during that time. Now, it is interesting that the cold influences Charles in a couple of places in his life. There is one mm-hmm. story where um, he was a very intelligent little boy, and during the winter time, 
his grades in his classroom started to plummet. And Interesting. the grades started to plummet, and the teacher was baffled as to why. And as the winter progresses, as the months get colder and colder, his grades spiral even further in decline. Well, it comes time, she, the teacher, she decides that she's going to assign the seating a little bit differently. And she moves him during that seating arrangement. She moves him away from the window. Now, unbeknownst to her, the window had a draft in it. And so as the cold months were progressing, that cold, that cold was so bitter to Charles that he couldn't concentrate on his grades. His studies started to falter and his grades began to sink. Once she moved him away from that cold, his grades started picking back up. His scores started to thrive. And we see that he was intelligent even as a, a young child. Here we see the cold playing another role in him in that he's on his way to church. He's going to church, but the snowstorm is so bitter and the cold is chilling him so deeply to the bone that he ducks into the first church he can find shelter. And it's this Methodist church, which, listen, Spurgeon was a Baptist through and through. He was, I mean, an unashamed Baptist, okay? And so when he tells the story, and he was always funny, he was always adding charm and wit to his sermons or to his stories, he says, I ducked for shelter in this Methodist church, but that didn't matter this day. <laughs> it was okay <laughs> that I ducked into a Methodist church on this Sunday. Because when he goes in there and you see the providence of God, you see the hand of God, the, the guiding of the Lord here. When he ducks in there, he goes and sits to be a part of this service. And the pastor who was supposed to preach that day He's not going to make it because the snowstorm is so difficult and navigation was so hard. The pastor is not going to make it there. So here we have this itinerant preacher. It might even have been a deacon in the church who is just, he's going to have to get up and he's going to have to fill the pulpit and he wasn't prepared for it. So he gets up and he's going to preach from Isaiah 45 and he gets up and he preaches from Isaiah 45. I believe it was verse 22. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. He gets up there and Spurgeon later on in his recounting this instance said that the sermon was miserable, that it was not very well put together. And of course it's not. This is not right. a, a preacher who was ready to get up and to make uh, to make a sermon out of the text. Uh but apparently this guy wasn't even gifted to do that, or at least... Well, yeah, Spurgeon described him as really stupid. Yes. That's, a, that, that's in Spurgeon's own words. Yes. And and he even said that uh, th- this guy could not even pronounce words rightly. Yes. And so he's, he's up there sounding stupid, not can't even like get words out correctly. In and, a Methodist church yeah, of all places. Yeah, in a Methodist places. church, yeah. Yeah, and so, <laughs> you know, I mean, he's, he's in a place to where you would not expect the prince of preachers to be in, and you would not expect him to be influenced in this time. But he was. Right. Because the Spirit was there. The Spirit had guided him. The Spirit had directed him. And Spurgeon, sitting there, wrestling with his faith, wrestling with his 
salvation and how could I ever be saved? He's sitting there in this little pew and this preacher looks right at him, points him out. This is his first Sunday, his only Sunday he'll ever be in this. Right. He's not even a member of this church. He's a stranger at this point. Who's ducked in, a 15-year-old kid who's ducked in from the cold. And he says, you, yeah, son, I'm talking to you, pointing at Spurgeon. He says, he says, you look miserable. And of course he was miserable. I mean, not only was he cold, but he's also wrestling with this salvation that he knows he doesn't have and wrestling with his faith that he knows he doesn't have. You look miserable, young man. You look absolutely miserable. And you're going to continue to be miserable unless you're saved. And it's that calling out coupled with the text of Isaiah 45, 22. Right. Which, and that text simply just says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Which that text is powerful. Absolutely. And it's potent and it, it, it works, but it's the spirit moving through that text. And then this kind of a Rough. lame duck of a preacher, yeah. this stupid communicator It's the Spirit who does this work, and Spurgeon is saved. Right, and Spurgeon describes this this instance. He says, I looked to him, being Christ, and he looked to me, and we were one forever. That's uh, that's his description of of what took place in that that primitive Methodist church there on Artillery Street, that that fateful day, that bitterly cold day. And uh, from then on, I mean, it's almost like, his gaze is set from that point on to now I'm going to preach this gospel. Right. He and I are going to be one and we are, he is through me going to proclaim the truth of the gospel that he has secured for me and for all who will trust in the name of Christ. Right. And this, you know, and this sort of story of his conversion really, really frames his his entire ministry really, Mm -hmm. really well Mm -hmm. because it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't some eloquent sermon. It wasn't, you know, the choicest of words or, or even the, the rightly crafted uh, sort of presentation that brought Spurgeon to Christ. It was simply the elevation of the text. A text which said, come to me and be saved for I am God and there's no one else. That's right. And, and that there's actually, um, I was watching a documentary on Spurgeon a few months ago, and they had an interesting story in there, just as a, a brief uh, aside. And and in the story, Spurgeon was was getting ready to preach at uh, at a particular venue. I can't recall what the venue was. It wasn't his home church. It was somewhere else. Um, and he was touring the venue. He was checking it out, seeing mm-hmm. how it was. And you got to remember, back in Spurgeon's day, they did not have... Uh, amplification or anything like that for for your voice. And so one of the things he was doing is he was sort of testing the acoustics of the venue by speaking from different places because they were anticipating a large crowd. I mean, Spurgeon's own church, uh, you know, would would have 6,000 people a day. Yeah. uh, And that includes, you know, standing room only. Yeah. Um, and so they were anticipating a large crowd. Spurgeon had, had become, you know, quite famous at this point. People were, were flocking to see him. And he was uh, testing the acoustics in this venue. And uh, he, he, you know, was, was looking around and found the place where he thought this might be a good position to preach from. And he got up into that position and he simply said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away 
the sins of the world. Right. And when he did that, there was actually a gardener working the grounds. And that gardener says that upon hearing those words, he recognized first that he was a sinner, that his sin, uh, he needed to be saved from his sin. And yet there was a sacrifice made Mm -hmm. for his sin. And that simply by Spurgeon speaking those words, those words from the text of scripture, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right. That text, God working through that text was enough to save this, this poor gardener who was, who was just there. It's the proclamation of the word of God. Absolutely. And and that is what all preachers are called to do. It doesn't matter if their communication skills are eloquent or stupid. The Holy Spirit can and will do what only the Holy Spirit can do. And that also plays a big role in his theology later yeah, on. He absolutely. is, a, uh, he is a, a Calvinist. He was a, a, a proud Calvinist. He was a proud Protestant, a proud Puritan. Some people say he might be the last true Puritan. Uh, yeah, I would, and, I would agree with that. And, sure. uh, and he was proud to be called those things. He actually equated all of his theology and all with, he said, he said, those are uh, foolish words to describe the richness of the gospel of Christ. Yeah. And, and, and so all of his ministry from that point on is I'm going to proclaim the word of God. I'm going to do that and that alone because that's my job. My job is to proclaim the word of God. It's the Spirit's job to add the increase yeah. or to to bring understanding. It's the Spirit's job to do what only He can do. So He does. He starts, he starts preaching the Word of God. And by the age of 17, He's preaching a lot. Yeah. Um, by the age of 20, He is given His first pastoral role. And that's crazy early. Yeah. That's crazy young. Um, I was... I was preaching uh, by the age of 23, and that was a really, really uh, young age. Um, I thought it was. I, I felt like I was flying by the seat of my pants, you know? Right, um, right. I think I, I think I, you know, if you want, if at this point in my life, looking back, I would not call it preaching, mm-hmm. but I would say that I preached for the first time around that time as well, Twenty. Two twenty-three, and thankfully, I'm pretty sure that those recordings have been trashed somewhere, right. and so those aren't available for anyone to listen to. Because right. even looking back at it, I'm like, yeah, this is this is not good. This is bad. But Spurgeon's was categorically different than most who are called uh, yeah. at a young age. Yeah, um, he starts preaching, and people start coming to hear. Because all he's doing is taking a text and elevating a text and letting the text speak. Right, right. And the Spirit is doing the work only the Spirit can do. And you've already mentioned Spurgeon was was a bright individual. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was very smart. He obviously read a Mm -hmm. lot. Um, And so to hear this sort of young, you know, 20-something get up and and preach, and not only just preach, but preach in a way that um, unlike... uh, Spurgeon's conversion story was very stupid, where he could not pronounce right. words correctly. Uh, it was it was somewhat of a uh, of, of a phenomenon. Right. Wow, what an interesting thing to see this young man, right? You know, so so on fire, right? And it's, it's it, he coupled so many of his sermons uh, early on and all throughout his career with he he could paint a picture. He yeah. you know he he could when he was preaching he would give you illustrations and and people could just 
they could imagine. They could just, they could see what he was saying. Yeah. He definitely had a way with words. And I think that's an important <clears throat> point to, uh, to make is that Spurgeon was first and foremost a preacher. Mm-hmm. Some people want to look to Spurgeon for, uh, you know, sort of a, you know, systematic breakdown of theology or different things like that. But Spurgeon primarily was not a theologian. Right. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think it would, cla- it would be right to classify him as a theologian, but his primary role was as a preacher. Yeah. And he recognized that my primary duty is to communicate these things in such a way that it meets individuals where they're at. And he could, he knew, he knew how to wield words to do that very thing. Yeah. After about two years of him being in that pulpit there, I mean, they start there, they've outgrown the space, you know, they start having to look for other places, you know, by the age of 27, he preaches his first sermon at a new chapel that they've built that will hold, well, it will seat 5,000, right? but there's standing room for 1,000, so it will hold 6,000 people, and 6,000 people are coming to hear Charles Week in, week in and week out. Preach. Yes. And this is without amplification. Yeah. This is without uh, audio equipment. The guy just got up there with a boon of a voice and would just proclaim the gospel. And people are flocking to hear it because it's it's so simple and it's so eloquent that it's just the text and that the Spirit's doing the work. Yeah. B.H. Uh, Carroll, who was the... Um, the founder of Southwestern Theological Seminary yeah. uh, in Fort Worth, te- Texas, um, actually gave a memorial address a week after Spurgeon um, had died. Mm. And here's one of the things that he said about Spurgeon's ministry. He said, Spurgeon's ministry has demonstrated and illustrated the, the truth of Scripture. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. He recognized that the preaching of Christ and him crucified, the glorying only in the cross, the knowing nothing but the cross outdraws an attraction, an attractive power, all other themes. Yeah. And that's really what's characteristic of, of who Spurgeon was and is, is really the mark of his ministry is that all he did was elevate Christ by elevating the scriptures. Yeah. And really the success of his ministry came from the fact that he did not elevate himself. He was not seeking to draw all men unto himself. He wanted to elevate Christ and to let Christ be glorified. And in Christ being glorified, Christ would draw all men unto yeah. himself. And that's what you see. That's what you see throughout um, his ministry. I mean, 6,000 people, that's a lot of people. It's a ton of people. Um, so he becomes the most popular preacher of the day. Um, he becomes an influencer of other preachers. Other preachers are wanting to talk with him, to meet with him. Uh, They find him incredibly influential. He's able to talk with people, and he's able to kind of mentor these men who are wanting to become preachers for the the next round. Yeah, and he actually in... he actually founded what he called the Pastor's College, which was a free seminary. Think about that for a second. He's uh, the most popular, the most famous preacher in all of England, and possibly, you know, it could be argued in the world at that time. At that time. time, yeah. Um, and yet he's still using his time offering free, uh, counsel, free education to young pastors. Uh, and it, the, the, he, he designed the seminary to help quote rough and ready ministers right. Right. sharpen their skills right. for ministry. And, and it says that within the first 20 years 
of operation, his students planted over 53 new Baptist churches in London. And that's not counting their worldwide impact or their worldwide missions or the the influence that they had across the whole of England. That's just in London, 53 new churches in 20 years because of what he did through his pastor's college. And man, I mean, like, what an incredible legacy, not only to say that the pulpit that I preach from will always stay consistent with the scripture, but that I train people, other men, to go and fill pulpits that will yeah. stay consistent with the scripture. What an incredible legacy. He had tremendous influence. There is a, a really funny story uh, about uh, when uh, cigarettes started becoming you know, popular and, and they started becoming uh, you know, kind of a, a, a mainstream thing a lot of the preachers were starting to smoke cigarettes and uh not Spurgeon didn't smoke cigarettes he smoked cigars he was right, a chain right. cigar smoker but uh as he sees cigarettes you know coming on the rise he meets with a bunch of pastors because he thought they were just vile he thought they were that there was nothing about them that was that was uh good or 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 Redemptive or in any winsome, way. yeah. There was no redemptive quality about cigarettes at all. They didn't smell good. They didn't taste good. There was nothing about them. So he calls them, and he meets with these preachers, and he starts talking to them about the evils of smoking cigarettes and how there can be no good that comes from it. And uh, because he is the prince of preachers, and he's talking with men who are willing to submit themselves to the authority of Scripture, and because Charles Spurgeon can use Scripture, and he argued eloquently, yeah. they were all convicted that, yes, we need to stop smoking cigarettes. This is a wrong habit to be involved in. We need to quit right now. Right after Spurgeon gets them to that point, he says, I hope that you recognize that that we should not be smoking cigarettes. He takes out a cigar and lights it in front of them, <laughs> to which they all look at him and say, wait a minute, you just said that we shouldn't be smoking. He said, he said dear friends, I said nothing about the joys of smoking a cigar. <laughs> Because they are winsome and they smell good and they taste good, you know what I mean? He, he of course, did he he uh, he did that, and you know, it's just he was a, a funny, humorous guy. He uh, clearly very witty, very witty, yeah. you know. And he could, man, he set them up for that like you wouldn't believe, you know. But he didn't always just. He wasn't just always just this eloquent speaker. He wasn't always just witty, even though those were absolute parts of it. Man, he went to war yeah. as well. Uh, there, kind of towards getting closer to the end of his life, liberalism, kind of this liberal idea, started to seep its way into the Baptist circles. Yeah. And, man, he went to war against it. I mean, absolutely. Uh, uh, came back to the text. He went to his bread and butter. Let's go to what the scripture says. He went to war against uh, this, these, these heresies, these liberalisms that started seeping into the Baptist circles and fought with tooth and nail against them. Yeah. And here's one of the things that he said, and this often, this, this period of time towards the end of his, his life and ministry is what's referred to as the, the downgrade controversy. Yeah. yeah. And that, that title comes from, uh, how Spurgeon described this, this sort of liberalism, that mm-hmm. it was a downgrade. It was a downgrade from Orthodox Christianity, a downgrade from biblical fidelity. Um, and here's one of the things that, that he said, um, he said, it is our solemn conviction that there should be no pretense of fellowship. Mm-hmm. And that's pretense with fellowship uh, with people who uh, ha- disagree on, on the essentials. Uh, uh, prior to that, he said, believers in Christ's atonement are now declared y- in union with those who make light of it. Yeah. 
Believers in Holy Scriptures are in confederacy with those who deny plenary inspiration. And so he's saying that there are these, there are these fundamentals of the, of the faith. There are these foundational aspects of what it means to be a Christian. And yet we're saying we have unity with those who disagree with us on those foundational yeah. issues. And so that's why he said, it is our solemn conviction that there should be no pretense of fellowship for fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin. Yeah. And he went to war against this, this downgrade. He fought yeah. to the nail against it. And, and the, the amazing thing is that at for a time, and like I have said before, man, he was a Baptist through and through. You know, he was he was a proud Baptist. Um, but there was a time in his ministry where he actually, by all the other Baptists, or by I guess a majority of the other Baptists, he was being ridiculed and yeah. he was being mocked and he was being uh even he was even being uh, pursued in anger and 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 kind of had had hostility against him because of his stance on scripture by Baptists. Yeah, by Baptists, yeah. he actually found more commonality with Anglicans at a time hmm. than he did with Baptists, because he would say of Anglicans or of Presbyterians or of Methodists or all. He said he said they. If they are for Christ and they are for his gospel and they are for the text of scripture, then I have more in line with them than I do with a Baptist right, who denies right. those things. And that's, I mean, that's something that we, you know, that's, but that's still kind of present in our day. Um, you know, we are, um, you know, we're Baptists. We're, we're a part of the Southern Baptist Convent, Convent, uh, Convention, and yet we are Reformed, mm-hmm. which kind of sets us outside of, you know, if we can put it sort of traditional mm-hmm. Baptist sort of, you know, ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, the other day and he was talking about, you know, um, you know, sort of his process and in, in his theology being reformed. And one of the things he, he said kind of off the cuff was that because, you know, Calvinism is such a dirty word in, in Southern Baptist circles. Yeah. And, and that's the case. And and we can certainly say that sometimes we find more in common with Presbyterians yeah. than we do with those in our own convention. Yeah. And, you know, not to say that, you know, the issues of Calvinism versus Arminianism can really uh, be raised to the heights of what Spurgeon was dealing with in his day. But we do see that even within, you know, sort of our own ranks, we do find that we're an outlier. Mm-hmm. And, Really, the standard should never be, well, what does the convention say? What does the Baptist faith and message say? The The real test of, of orthodoxy comes from, well, what does the scripture right, say? Right. And whether or not we're being uh, true and faithful to what the scriptures lay out as as what is right and what is proper and what is uh, you know theologically accurate and what is good doctrine and all, all of those things. Yeah. And so he was a a very influential pulpiteer. Yeah. He was a very strong leader for other pastors to fill pulpits. He was a warrior for the sake of the gospel. He was witty and charming. And man, it just seems like we talk about him so much that he must have died as an old man, that his influence must have been through decades of his preaching, but unfortunately, he died at the age of fifty-seven. Yeah, 
He died fairly young. A very young man for uh, for today's standards, for sure. But even back then, he died, uh, as we would say, long before we thought he would have. Yeah. Um, so at 57, he dies, and the world did mourn the loss of his voice in the pulpit, the loss of his preaching. Um, and in some ways, the liberal agenda became, because of his passing, it did kind of eventually, the wave of that did kind of overtake Baptist yeah. uh, uh, ideology and theology for a time. And it wasn't until maybe even the the mid-1980s that we started to see a resurgence of, of, um, of coming back to the text of Scripture right, as right. the predominant and the majoritative uh, thing that that Baptists are teaching and training how to do. Yeah, um, and so Spurgeon had a really wide influence, and really that influence extended beyond just his church, or even you know just sort of Baptist. Yeah, um, you know, in general, uh, Spurgeon honestly had a really large impact on on the culture in England yes. at that time. Um, and Spurgeon was actually a contemporary of Karl Marx, mm-hmm. and they yeah. both lived. And worked in London mm-hmm. at the same time. And there are some who really credit Spurgeon with staving off the Marxist revolution in England. Because although Marx was in England, although he sought to bring about that revolution in England, it, it never happened. Yeah. It happened in, in France. Um, it happened in, uh, you know, I guess you could say Russia in, 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 some, mm-hmm. in some way or another. But it never happened in England, and and there are there are some historians, um, some uh, uh, theologians who say that really it was because of the work of Spurgeon yeah. that Marx never um, was never successful in bringing about that that revolution, and uh, which is funny because Spurgeon is often thought of as being an apolitical preacher. Everyone, you know, I've heard it said many times. Spurgeon never got into politics. He never preached politics. All he wanted to do was preach the word. He never concerned himself with the po- the politics of his day. And to some degree, I think that's true, yeah. that, that Spurgeon was apolitical. But I think it'd be more accurate to say that Spurgeon was a partisan, that he did yeah. not yeah. take up uh, a you know particular political party and try to argue uh, for their position, or he did not take up uh, particular policies of particular political parties and say that this is this is really what should be pursued and whatnot. Right. And Spurgeon actually said at one point um, uh, when speaking against um, socialism, he said, great schemes of socialism have been tried and found lacking. Right. Let us look to regeneration by the son of God and we shall not look in vain. And then in another time, he said to attempt national regeneration through, obviously, the Marxist revolution. Without personal regeneration is to dream of erecting a house without separate bricks. Right, right. Right? Like he's, you're missing the foundational aspect of it. You you want people to live in a community with shared resources? You expect them to live as Christians. They can't do that if they're not Christians, if they haven't been regenerated. And it's also very interesting, a guy by the name of Frederick Engels, who was actually a colleague of Marx, And uh, was uh, it's been said it was also as as equally fanatical as as Marx was. Um, At one point, Engels was asked who was the person that he detested most. And he unequivocally responded Spurgeon because he recognized 
Spurgeon or Ingalls recognized that people who believe what Spurgeon preached, people who hold to, who possess the things of which Spurgeon preached, do not, as a rule, overthrow governments. And that was the entire uh, sort of position of of Marx, of mm-hmm. the Marxist revolution, yeah. was that we need to throw off the government in, in order to establish a, you know, a utopia. And yeah. he recognized that, no, Christians, true biblical Christians recognize that God's the one who institutes government authorities. Right. And so they don't, they don't engage in revolutions. And I know that may sound odd sitting here in the United States, and I don't want to make too much of this, but, uh, you know, the, the American war for independence, I don't think can be compared in any way to the French revolution Um, and and quite frankly, I intentionally call it the war for independence and not the American revolution because it actually wasn't a revolution. It wasn't the attempt of, uh, colonialists to overthrow their government. It was actually their government who broke covenant with them. Mm -hmm. They were, uh, you know, instituted by the King of England. They were under his authority. And at the time there were two separate political entities in England. There was the Royal political entity and then there was the parliamentary Mm -hmm political entity and the parliament did not have any rights when it came to the colonies. And yet what the, uh, what the parliament tried to do is they tried to tax the colonies. They tried to impose their, their rule on the colonies. And they said, we're, we're not under your rule. We're under the King's rule. Mm -hmm. And because the King wouldn't stand up to parliament, they said, well, if you're, if you're not going to do your duties as our authority, then we do not recognize you as, as a right authority. And we certainly don't recognize parliament. And so, you know, I, I think it's it's absolutely true that, you know, revolution, overthrowing governments, that that's not a Christian concept. Right. And and, and at no time at, at any point should Christians be advocating for the overthrowing of governments because it's God who's instituted these governments. Right. Uh, Romans 13 tells us that that civil governments are, are God's deacon. It's his servant for carrying out justice in society, punishing evil, rewarding right. what is good. And so the Marxists understood this. Yeah. Marx understood it. Engels understood it. And they recognized that, hey, that guy who keeps elevating Christ, who keeps elevating the text, who keeps advocating for personal salvation, for personal regeneration, because of what he's doing, people don't want to overthrow their government. Right. They didn't understand it on their own gusto. They understood it because Spurgeon got up there and Spurgeon elevated the word of God. Yeah. He elevated Christ. And he said, this is how a Christian will live, how they will see the world. And... In that proclamation, it wasn't the loftiness of Spurgeon that made these things true. It was the spirit at work, like he knew from the beginning. It has nothing to do with whether he's a stupid communicator or whether he's an eloquent communicator. Right. It has to do with, is the word being proclaimed, is Christ being exalted, and is the spirit at work? And when that happens, we see men like Charles Spurgeon who get up there, and when they read the Word, elevate Christ, and the Spirit moves, we see the hand of God do incredible things. Right. And Spurgeon leaves a legacy not of his eloquence so much as his obedience to follow in that line. And right, we should right. all, all of us, desire to follow in that line. Yeah, and going back to what um, B.H. Carroll said in his uh a memorial address after Spurgeon's death. Uh, he, here's what he had to say. He said, never since Paul died, that's Paul of the apostle, the, the new Testament, right? Never since Paul died has so much work 
and so much success been crowded into so small a space of time. Right. <laughs> his pulpit being Spurgeon's pulpit, his pulpit power derived no aid uh, from adventitious circumstances. He dealt in no tricks of elocution. He cannot conceive, uh, you cannot conceive of Mr. Spurgeon attitudinizing before a mirror to learn graceful gesticulation. Mr. Spurgeon's pulpit power consisted largely in his convictions. He spake because he believed. He realized that he carried a message from God, a message of life to the lost, and it was his business to deliver the message, not vindicate it. He did not feel any authority to minify, dilute, or change it. And I think that is more than anything else that just summarizes Spurgeon's ministry. Right. He recognized he had a message from God. He carried that message. He realized it was his business to carry that message, not his own message, right. but the message from God laid out in the scriptures. And he exercised no authority to minimalize, to dilute, to, to downgrade, or, or to change it in any way. And it's because of that reason that the sermons that we've read in this book really are potent. They're powerful because, man, he didn't change anything in the Word of God to suit the culture, to suit the needs. He was faithful to proclaim the truth that that text brought to light. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion of assurance, and we hope that it has been edifying to you and your walk with Christ. Now, this conversation is by no means exhaustive, so we pray that our discussion leads to meaningful conversations with friends and family as you learn what it means to place your hope and assurance of salvation upon Christ and Christ alone. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact us at podcasts at northclay.org. For more information from Northclay Baptist Church or from the Ardent Archives, visit our website at www.northclay.org. We look forward to learning with you again soon here on the Ardent Archives.